0: He ended up being in an ambulance with the markings of the Red Cross on, and his unit came under attack. It hit really close to home, you know, being a physician and, you know, having another physician be killed by the enemy in such a despicable way. It was definitely a very painful experience.
1: My name is Shauna Springer. I'm a licensed psychologist, award winning podcast host, the author of two best selling books, Warrior and Beyond the Military, and a leading expert on psychological trauma, military transition, suicide prevention, and close relationships. Though I've never served in the military myself, I've been adopted into the tribe as a trusted healer. Classmate David Huang is a physician and retired Air Force Colonel, a devoted husband and father and a maker of fine wines. He and his family live in the Napa Valley wine country. In our conversation, David and I reflect on how the military life brings unique challenges and rewards, and how connection is the most important form of wealth. I'm so pleased to bring this conversation forward as part of our 25th Reunion podcast series. Let's drop into the conversation. So David, I remember you from college as being a really kind, open-hearted person, but we haven't talked since graduation. Right. And you came out of college and went into the military service. And the first thing I want to ask is about why you chose the military path and to share some of your experiences on that journey with all of us.
0: At the end of uh, college, when I was applying to medical school, I you know, I interviewed at a few schools. And one of the schools I interviewed at was the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences, which is the military medical school in Washington, D.C. And it just had a very different feel than any other schools I had visited, uh, just much more team oriented, um, people helping each other out. People talked about, you know, that they knew they were going to work together eventually, as well as potentially deploy throughout their careers. And so it, it just had a much more team oriented atmosphere to medical school than the other places I've visited. So that was the beginning of my career.
1: So I would say that, you know, when you were applying to medical schools, maybe the difference that you felt was that sense of tribe in the military of being part of that unit that is about a bigger mission.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, You feel like, you know, there's something bigger than yourself that you're joining. There's, you know, sort of a common goal that people are working towards. I think about my first deployment in 2006 to Iraq and at the base I was at at Balad, there were five people from my own class who were there and we worked together to help each other with patients and, you know, notwithstanding people from all the other classes that went to my medical school. So it's just a totally different thing where, you know, often in medical school, people afterwards, they graduate, they go to residencies all over the country and then, you know, go different places. Um, We all knew we were going to be working together for most of our careers.
1: Wow. And we know that, you know, not everybody who serves in the military serves in the infantry and you weren't in the infantry, but you can still see some things that are well outside the bounds of what most of us experience. Can you bring us into some of those stories from your time in the military?
0: As in the military, I mean, obviously our job, my, you know, specialty was being a physician, but you're also an officer, you know, a military member and you have to follow the rules like any other military member. And, and you know, much of the training is similar as well. I um, have to learn even as a physician how to fire a gun and be able to protect your patients as well as yourself. It's definitely a uh, very different than, you know, the normal non-military civilian life. You know, as we talked about, you know, there's this higher purpose. People are committed to working towards a mission. Something happened a couple of years ago. I was listening to one of the enlisted folks in my unit talk and she was talking to her boyfriend on the phone and he was asking why she was staying after, you know, aren't you supposed to be done? You're off at four 30. And, you know, there's a commitment to something that is well beyond, you know, like clocking in and out and, you know, people would stay after hours or we would come in on weekends if we're preparing for, you know, a training mission or an inspection, things that there's no overtime in the military, you know? So if you're working 24 hours, you're still getting paid the same. So it's just a different level of commitment and, and sense of mission and taking care of each other, you know, like, when you're stationed away from your family let's say you know often people gravitate back towards where they came from or grew up but when you're in the military you could be stationed anywhere in the world and or even in our country and so there's a sense of taking care of each other and and you know becoming our own sort of family away from home
1: it's an interesting thing because in the military nobody's going to stand on their individual rights you know i have the right to be paid overtime or not work weekends and It's a place where people give up their individual rights. They can be told where to live and where to move for different deployments or parts of their career. But for so many people that I've worked with as a trusted doc to the military tribe, that the payment, if you will, for that comes in the form of this really unique connection and sense of belonging and family and mission that really gives people an organizing purpose that is something it's very hard to find, you know, in other lines of work.
0: I agree. Yeah, definitely. I mean, medicine and healthcare is this, you know, service-oriented. Obviously, we're serving people and taking care of them. But I think the military is a way, you know, another form of service to our country. And, you know, everybody's choosing, like you're saying, to be part of something that they're willing to serve. In military medicine, even more so, I think, you know, sort of a, a secondary layer of service into our patients. So definitely a, a sense of this commitment to serving others.
1: And you've been able to do things that many doctors in our society are not able to do any longer, given the evolution of the medical profession. You told me about some of the adventures you had in Abu Dhabi or kind of operating as more like a small town doc that knows all of the families and people you serve. I'd love to hear some of those stories.
0: Yeah, I did a residency after medical school and psychiatry, but I, you know, joined the Air Force, really interested in flying as well. Something I'd always, and as a little kid, my dad would take me to air shows and kind of went back to that and became a primary care doctor in the military. They call a flight surgeon for a squadron of pilots and and other personnel. And it really was like, sort of, I imagine, in you know the movies, being a small town doc, you work with the people you take care of they become your close friends, you know, you're taking care of their spouses, they're like coworkers to you and you're sort of almost like living in a bubble with them in a sense, Um, you know, going to squadron at holiday events and other events and and then eventually, you know, having the opportunity to deploy with them. So I deployed twice with the folks that I was a flight doc for. And so really living and taking care of them and, and just being part of a community in that way. So that was really a, an amazing part of my career. I said... I often say that's probably one of the best jobs I've ever had.
1: Yeah. That connection that you would have had with those patients is such an intimate one. Uh, And I don't use intimate in any way other than to say emotionally connected, just deeply and strongly connected to each other. I think in medicine in general, there's often this sense of, oh, um, I'm the provider and you're the patient and there's like this invisible class system that occurs in, in medicine outside of the military, but you know in the military, you don't have those kind of boundaries and those kind of provider patient distinctions. Yes, you're their doc, but you also are going to show up to the same social events, you know rank ceremonies, all of that. you're part of that bigger tribe. and that's really unique and hard to find, I think in society in general.
0: And especially in, you know, back in mental health and psychiatry, I mean, I couldn't imagine doing some of the things with my psychiatric patients, but, you know, and family wise, it was a really great experience. My daughter was growing up with some of the kids in the squadron as well. And we stayed really close, both as friends as adults, but also the kids have stayed friends and we actually got a chance. One of my closest pilot friends was stationed in Morocco and we got to go stay with them for a week. And our, you know, the kids went off on their own and did their own things together. It was just, it was one of the you know, most amazing community experiences I've had.
1: A great adventure in this extended family and people, you know, are moving often in the military tribe. And so it's a bit nomadic, but people in the military can forge those connections so quickly and so tightly because there's this common ethos, this common identity around that mission. Uh, One of the things that you and I both know is that war is chaos and the best planned situation can quickly go sideways. That's true for anybody who serves in a military or first responder role um, or as a doc in that kind of context. Can you share any stories about you know, just the the kind of unpredictability of the environments that you can find yourself in, in those roles.
0: Yeah. So when I deployed to Afghanistan in 2010, um, you would think that we were, you know, fairly along into the war, you know, it's almost 10 years since 9-11. And, but It was almost like the war was starting over when I got there. The North had sort of been retaken by the Taliban and we were being sent to reestablish a beachhead essentially in Northern Afghanistan and retake it. And so I was sent as a primary care physician uh, to take care of this one, a different unit that I was assigned to an Air Force unit. But when we arrived, there was no other, we were set up, you know, for, to not have any other um, U.S. forces, you know, to, to help support the medical needs of our team. But as soon as I got there, uh, some folks heard about me down in, in Bagram, which is near Kabul, which is the main base in Afghanistan where NATO and had all their command center. And, and they actually sent sent up a, a unit and a couple of folks and said, hey, we just heard you're here. And we had no plans for a mental health provider for all of northern Afghanistan for the next <laughs> six months. So we're happy you're here you're right. to take that over.
1: <laughs> oh. um, so that
0: was kind of so, you know, I ended up having army and navy folks being convoyed to me this is again nine years into the war people have had quite a bit of you know trauma that they've already experienced and needed treatment and so people were being convoyed to me to be seen and get help other crazy things when i got there we found out there was really no logistical way to supply chain set up so in order to even get like band-aids any kind of medical supplies Mm -hmm. or just basic medications resupplied there was no real easy way to do that so I had a friend who I knew from residency who was down at the hospital in Bagram, the joint Air Force hospital. So I got in touch with him and ended up having to fly back and forth to Bagram just to get medications and supplies for our patients. At times, I felt like I was almost like a drug mule or something, but um, <laughs> but it was the only way to get things done. And so again, it was just mind boggling that, you know, nine years into a war, um, you yeah. We were still it was, there it was trying you. to get supplies. And it
1: was, yeah, it was on you. That's another really interesting thing about the military. Sometimes I've, I've heard those stories and have friends and veterans in my network who would say, you know, I was the single mental health provider for these several units or this huge catchment area. Mm-hmm. And so it's an interesting irony because you could be tasked to do whatever is needed and there isn't always backup so a lot of times in war you get tasked to something and you know you don't have a team so you you can find yourself with immense, an immense and enormous amount of responsibility for the lives of many many people and you have support but you may be the only person of your kind to provide that service
0: yeah, I mean, when we initially were set up, we were supposed to support the unit we were with, which was about 150 people. But by the time me and my medic left Afghanistan, we were taking care of about 5,000 folks. It got That's pretty right. crazy pretty fast.
1: Yeah, 150 is a caseload. You know, yeah. It's a it's a actually pretty reasonable caseload for a psychiatrist. Um, for those who are listening outside of the mental health profession, it'd be caseload for, you know, a high, high functioning psychologist, but five thousand. That isn't a caseload. You know, that's serving a small country. And you and I know that even if you're not in an infantry role, there can be trauma as part of the military path. I know that we both agree that the human toll of the suffering people face in times of war, no amount of lip service, no thank you for your service, no amount of money can make up for that. Can you tell us a story about your experience with that?
0: So I was at a NATO base, it turned out, in northern Afghanistan, and I was the only U.S. military physician on the whole base. Um, I had my medic with me, but luckily there was a German hospital on the base So for things that I couldn't handle, which would be like an x-ray machine that we wouldn't have or something like that. Mm. I got really close to the German physicians, both because I needed their help to take care of our patients that were there, but also obviously in medicine, you get, you know, have something in common and something to talk about. So I would go see them most evenings. They had a area that they would hang out in. And, um, and one of them I got to know pretty well. And his name was Thomas Brewer and the Germans did send some folks out on patrol of the physicians to support their team so that they would have mm-hmm. somebody close to the action. If somebody was to be injured and, um, one day he was sent out on a mission to support his, you know, the NATO troops in the field. And you know, we in the US, obviously, we try to follow the genome of conventions and, and the law of war and and do what we think is the right thing, even if it is in this in the midst of a war. But other countries or, or non-country entities don't necessarily mm-hmm. follow these rules or think about it in the same well, way. Well, the we Taliban would. And,
1: doesn't. We know that.
0: Right. Right. So so he ended up being in the ambu- in an ambulance with the markings of the Red Cross on it, and his unit came under attack. And um, it was clear that it was an ambulance, but they, uh, the Taliban ended up shooting a rock propel grenade into the ambulance and incinerating him as well as the other folks. Something that sort of, I guess, burned in my memory and hit really close to home. You know, we had, you know, other people unfortunately passed away while we were in Afghanistan and obviously throughout the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan many thousands of people have you know died but yep. you know it hit to me a lot closer to home you know i had a 2 year old daughter at home and um mm-hmm. you know being a physician and you know having another physician be killed by the enemy in such a tragic and
1: and sudden
0: dis- traumatic in some ways you know in my mind despicable way blowing up an ambulance and and then he you know he had an unborn child at home He'll he'll never meet, obviously. It just made it really, uh, I mean, we have wars, obviously, and it's a thing that occurs in human existence, but it's uh, definitely, there's a lot of negative that comes out of war. And just, it was definitely a very painful experience for me and something I think about a lot.
1: Yeah. I thought about, you know, our, our history and how, you know, when we were fighting the British, they would line up and walk towards... American forces you know but we were essentially guerrilla forces at that time you know in terms of taking the advantage by not standing in huge lines and walking in some uniform fashion into fire and so that was strategic but I've been thinking about how do you do war with with honor what is the distinction between taking strategic and tactical advantage and being a warrior but doing it With honor you know it doesn't to take out an ambulance and a healer there should be something there that stops you and says that's not honorable so when you say despicable that's kind of where where my mind goes So your daughter was two at the time, and you retired from full-time service in 2012. And then you started in the reserves. And there was a time where you were living in California and you would show up to your daughter's school in uniform. And I'd love to hear about, you know, those days, kind of the rhythm of your life, maybe how the military values shaped the ways that you think of family and raise your daughter.
0: Yeah. So I was due to moved to a new base. So uh, but my wife's from the area and we had really made a lot of connections for, you know, family wise and my daughter in terms of, you know, support for her growing up. And didn't feel like we wanted to end up moving to another base. So I ended up leaving active duty in 2012, as you said, and in joining the reserves, which is, you know, some people call weekend warriors, I guess. <laughs> um, but one week in a month and then a few weeks a year of training, sometimes more. Part of that was also wanting a little bit slower i guess pace of work you know the military definitely has a very monday through friday you know assuming there's you're not on a deployment you have to be there and so i looked for a position where i could spend more time with my daughter as she was growing up and something i valued and so found a job where i could work 4 days a week and still get full time pay and could volunteer in her class on my day off and be really active. And, you know, the kids knew me in the class and I got to know them and coaching her basketball team when she was in elementary school and taking her to her other activities and, you know, just being a really active part of her life as a parent, which it was harder for my parents when they were raising me just, you know, economically Mm -hmm. and things. And so wanted to take advantage of, you know, the position I had been able to get to and the socioeconomic advantages that I was able to have to provide more time with my daughter. So that's been a really special part of the last few years. And, you know, as I've had different positions come up, whether in leadership, at work and things, you know, one of the things I've really made it priority was that I wasn't going to give up that one day a week to have with her. So I've turned down or not taken or applied for jobs that would have prevented me from still being able to do that.
1: Let's talk about winemaking. How did you get into that? And what is the story of making wine for you?
0: Yeah. So when I, you know, I I was pre-med, but had some interest in wine already at the time. And I was thinking about whether I should go to UC Davis for viticulture and oenology after college or go to medical school. And as a good Chinese American son, I (laughs) followed the path that my tiger parents uh, had laid for me. So I went to medical school, but, you know, while I was in medical school (laughs) and residency, you know, still enjoyed wine tasting um, meeting other people who enjoyed wine. um, And even in residency playing around a little bit and, and making some, there's these kit wines you can make with, you know, they box up some grape juice and then, you know, you throw some yeast in and turn it into palatable form of wine. So then when we moved to California, I was luckily stationed here in Northern California for my first assignment, we had moved into a neighborhood in Napa and since it's fairly, it's only about thirty minutes away from the base I was at, and went to a Labor Day party, and some talked about having something interested in making wine, and somebody said, "Oh, you should talk to that guy." And next thing I knew, uh, a couple of weeks later, we were making wine in my garage, and from there, uh, you know, started taking classes at the local community college. They have a, a wine winemaking program, cool. and uh, got together with some friends, and sort of grew over time. And one of the guys in my group, uh, his name's Clint, which is. the the Clinton part of David Clinton, our commercial wine project. And I decided to kind of jump off a cliff and take it to the next level. And so we've had a commercial wine project going since 2010.
1: I think people don't appreciate how much work and science and knowledge goes into making a really good wine. So having said that, this is not just, you know, a palatable wine that you're producing for its drinkability. Like this is a really nice wine that I'm enjoying right now. Do you have any tips for people that might want to go into the viticulture business?
0: Yeah, definitely recommend, you know, taking some classes if you can. You know, there are community colleges and and, and colleges around the country that have classes to learn um, some of the science behind it and how to avoid making mistakes. And then, you know, find some friends to experiment with. I think It's a lot more fun if you have somebody to do with and some other people to learn with and also share in some of the investments of of making wine.
1: Yeah, definitely. So, as we're wrapping up and we're thinking about the 25th reunion, I kind of think of this as a way station to perhaps the second part of all of our lives. And we've learned some things, but there's a whole chapter in front of us where we will hopefully all take what we've learned and forward with that knowledge and that understanding. What would you say is the essence of a good life based on all of your experiences from from Harvard, from your time in the military, from your work with those who suffer from traumas and mental health conditions to the joy of life around the winemaking business that uh, you and Clinton are engaged in?
0: I think what I've taken so far is, you know, Keeping connections to friends and making connections with new friends is really important to feeling fulfilled. I think that's what I've taken. You know, I think reunion is an opportunity for us to sort of reconnect with some of our old friends that we've, you know, either lost track of or just haven't kept in contact with as close as we want. And and I think that's sort of the philosophy that started the wine project I'm involved in, and, and sort of the philosophy we put on our bottle. You know, it says our wines are made by two friends for friends, to share with friends. And I think that sort of gets the essence of what I've gleaned over the last couple decades since we were in college is that, you know, it's really important to find a way to connect with people that you really care about and and find a way to keep connecting with them so that you can have those enduring friendships and and human connection that we all desire.
1: I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, the military ethos and life have been such an influence for both of us. And when i think about my work as a psychologist you know the central thing that really has come through for me as well is when we connect we survive we survive and and we thrive and we reach potential that we don't otherwise so i think it's it's vital and i didn't even notice that on the back of your bottle but that's really cool david well, thanks, David, for yeah. joining me today. And I can't wait to get this out and uh, look forward to staying in touch.
0: No, great. Connecting again. Thanks.
1: All right. Bye.
2: Some days the clocks release their powers. Head down. You're on the job for hours. Doesn't cross your mind that it's time to go. The night crew asks you why you're staying. No one's requiring it. No one's paying. You sink into your groove and let the record flow Giving care, making wine Some work outranks the nickel and dime Boundaries blur in the service of your purpose and drive Late in the day you're sitting with a friend Filling your glass and taking it in Labors of love overtime. time To work with a sense of duty Came back with reverence for beauty Somewhere beyond the promise of accolades It was never about the abundant supplies We didn't have a bandage to save our lives Sometimes holding a hand is the south that saves When you're giving care Making wine, some work outranks the nickel and dime Boundaries blur in the service of your purpose and drive Late in the day you're sitting with a friend Filling your glass and taking it in Labors of love over time Labors of love labors of love over time How could it end in an ambulance Despicable acts callousness The markings of red cross are never vague There is no way to make amends Just a moment of silence Do remember good women and men Giving care or making wine Some work outranks the nickel and dime Boundaries blur in the service Of your purpose and drive Late in the day you're sitting with a friend Filling your glass and taking it in Labors of love over time Birds of-